And so what I'd like to do is give a short talk and then do some questions. And the questions could be related to the talk or not, doesn't matter. Um, but I do like you to, uh, and I'll say a little more about the questions when and if we get there. We'll see. Like I said, I wasn't sure what I was going to do tonight, but I, now I have some idea, hopefully. Um, and what I'd like to begin talking about is um, related to yesterday. And yesterday was Father's Day. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about um, father, the archetype of father in Buddhism, and a little bit in our lives, maybe. How many people here, I'm just curious, are fathers? Let me just see. Okay. How many people here ever had or have a father? (laughs) Okay. Okay, so we all are familiar with the territory in some way, shape, or form. Um, um, Pardon? That's a different question. I'm not asking that question. Um, can you ask if anyone here knows Lisa Wigglesworth? Anybody here know Lisa Wigglesworth? Okay. She was, she's in the back. She just needed someone. Thank you. Okay. Um, and uh, the reason that I think it's kind of interesting to talk about father... Uh, from a Buddhist perspective, given it was Father's Day yesterday, um, is that the Buddha was a father. And the Buddha, uh, the story of the Buddha's family life is some, sometimes known, I don't know, maybe some people know, maybe some people don't. But the basic outline of the story of the Buddha was that he was a prince and lived a kind of really nice life for his time and he was high caste and high class and uh, well off and um, quite a hedonist actually while he lived in, as a prince he said to enjoy every sensual pleasure of his time um, and he also it said got married and had a son and even with his high caste, high class, you know, he had the nicest computer and, please, you know, he had a really nice car. And if you could leave the lights on, please. Thank you. Sorry. Um, that um, even though he had he was all, the, all the good life of his time and his era, um, he wasn't, there was something that wasn't satisfied. There was some lack of contentment. There was some dis-ease in his life, some existential angst that moved him and that moved him to seek enlightenment. And it moved him so deeply as even though he had this good life and even though he had all these good things and even though he had a you know, loving wife and a beautiful son, he wasn't happy. And his happiness was uh, an existential unhappiness, an existential dis-ease. And it motivated him at some point. It was so powerful at some point that he left. He left his wife, he left his son, and he went to seek enlightenment. And that uh, some people know that, some people don't. Often people are a little uh, startled by that when they first hear that in Buddhism, that the Buddha, because given our, the values of our time and our age, it, you know, he sounds like you know, he's a deadbeat dad. Or, and, and in some way he, he is. He leaves, he leaves them. I, don't th- I think he leaves them with plenty of means. So he's not totally a deadbeat dad. But... Um, um, but he forsakes his the conventional relationship with his family to seek awakening. And he goes and then spends years, some six years, practicing very severely. So he's given up the hedonistic life and the life of family, and he lives in a very ascetic, wandering sadhu uh, life of a, of a renunciate. 
And then when he realizes that's not quite the right way, that the asceticism doesn't bring him the freedom he seeks, he discovers the middle way and he awakens. And then what happens after that is at a certain point, you know, he becomes the Buddha and people start coming to him and studying with him and becoming disciples of his and creates a whole monastic order and there's uh, basically a whole big organization and he's the CEO now as the Buddha. And at a certain point he, um, um, and he wanders over the countryside of northern India and Nepal and at some point he comes back home. He comes back to his town and his village and um, people come and bow and you know honor him and come to hear him talk. But guess who doesn't come? His wife. She's like, no way, bro, you, you left. I'm not going to come, you know, bow to you. And it's a very interesting part in the mythology because he goes to her. It's the one place, the one place in the text where you see the Buddha kind of goes to somebody else for a, and, and a little bit makes amends by going there. A little bit. I don't know if she was totally happy, but but it but it was there was some acknowledgement that he had to go to her, and he goes to her, and and then, um, and I you know I'm not sure of one part of the story, but what what the part I'm sure of is that his son becomes a disciple, and his son becomes a disciple at an early age, at age seven, six or seven. And then what's interesting is, and, and so just in terms of context, remember, we're reading, we're looking at um, human mythology, the mythology of the human race. The Buddha, the story of the Buddha is one of the great mythological teachings of the human race. It's been handed down now for some 2,600 years. This story of this man who seeks awakening and discovers it and then can transmit it so that literally we're sitting here today because of this story, because of this man and what he did. And um, so it's interesting to just consider this father image of the Buddha was a father and he had to leave his family in order to awaken. And for me, when I think about it mythologically, I think about, oh, we all have to leave our family, at least symbolically, if not actually, which I'm not suggesting any of you should go home tonight and leave your family, but that in some symbolic way, we actually do have to leave our family or we have to leave our conventional understanding of reality if we want to awaken, if we want to understand the fruit of what the Buddha taught. If we, if we want to realize the truth or the freedom or the happiness that he realized, there is some way we, we have to leave conventional reality and come into a new relationship with it, come into a spiritual relationship or a sacred relationship. And so it's a little bit how I think of this whole story of the Buddha leaving his family and then coming back and being in a different relationship. And again, I'm not sure if this is accurate, but I think his wife also became a disciple. And if that's true, it makes it a very good story for what I'm saying, right? Then, then, they're, then they're back in relationship. People make up a lot of things around this. I try to, I try to be clear when I'm clear and say when I'm not clear. Um, actually, I was reading one thing on the Internet today, and actually there's like 10 stories about the Buddha and his wife. I'm giving you the one from the Theravada, because there are other stories that are a little different. Um, the, um, but then it says something to us about our relationship to our family, to our life, to conventional reality that if we continue to live our life in a conventional way without questioning our relationship to it we may do a disservice to our practice we may not actually begin to be able to really realize the fruit and see the fruit and know the fruit, to taste the fruit of the Buddha's teachings. Um, 
And in some way, we understand this, it's a little like the maturation process, that, you know, just as human beings, that there is some way that, especially in our culture, that um, 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 individuation, maturation, means, part of that means separation. That we separate from our families in some way to find ourselves, to find who and what we are. And this is another, this is maybe the next level of this, of the possibility of maturation for human beings. It's not simply the conventional maturation of becoming an individual and functioning as an individual in the society, but to mature in a way so that we awaken the wisdom that's inherent for us as human beings, that awakens the a tremendous breadth and depth of heart that's available for us as human beings that awakens the presence uh, um, and um, beingness that's available for us as human beings. And I'd like to highlight um, a little bit this conventional and we could say conventional and unconventional relationship with life or with family, um, with the practice that I used to do with my daughter that we started doing when she was about 10 or 11, 12. And um, we used to um, do just a simple like one-minute practice where we would sit together and she would have to see that I'm not her dad and I would have to see that she's not my daughter. We, We would just break the trance of the roles just for a minute 30 seconds was actually enough for her, usually. <laughs> you know, we'd look, we'd look for a minute. And you could do this with anybody you're in relationship with. I was actually playing with it. My brother's visiting right now. And, you know, I've known him my whole life, right? It's my brother. But I just started playing with it. I didn't even tell him I was playing with it. You can do it without telling people. I just started seeing, oh, what if he's not my brother? You know, what does he look like to me if he's not that role that he's been in? But because, and it's not to deny the role, it's not that he's not my brother, it's not that my daughter is not my daughter, but that's not all of who anybody is. We're, none of us are the roles we're in or the constellation we're in with anybody. Even student-teacher, is a, it's just a constellation. And it's a, you know, it's a functional constellation and it works well, hopefully, sometimes. But that's all it is. But there's something else here that's much more than student-teacher or father-son or, you know, whatever it might be, co-worker, boss, or whatever the role might be, there's something much more real here, much more alive, much more mysterious here. And so my daughter and I would do this, and we'd do it really probably 30 seconds. She'd go, okay, that's enough. That's enough. Because it's a little weird when you do it. You know, it's a little weird, especially when you're 10 or 11. It was probably not, I was probably teaching her this a little early. But um, <laughs> but she was very, she was, my daughter's got a good brain. And by the time she was 14, I would tell her to do something, and she'd say, you're not my father. (laughs) She was very... (laughs) So I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, so, So the Buddha let go of the conventional or the habitual way of being in relationship, and then with his transcendence and transformation as the Buddha return to relationship on another octave, in another way. And so the fear that people have is if we don't stay with our habit, with our convention, that we'll lose people or we'll lose the love or we'll lose something. And I would actually challenge you to see if that's true or not. Because there's a kind of attachment we have to the familiar an attachment to habit, attachment or trance-like that we get into about life and the world and people and our roles in relationship. But letting go of all of that doesn't mean that the person has to go away or that the love goes away. Attachment is not love. Love is not attachment. 
They're very different. And maybe one of the blessings of um, being in a role like father or mother, or it could be sister or brother or aunt or uncle, it could be any, or, or parenting figure in any form or relational figure, that when we really learn, when we really get there, when we're awake in the role, is that uh, we begin to see, we can actually start to see somebody we love in a way where we don't have to be attached to them or attached to the form. But especially parenting, here's what, here's what I want to say. I think of parenting, or I have thought of it, it's still I think of it this way, as one creates a certain structure to help this being become themselves and actually leave. That's the goal. The goal isn't that the child stays. The goal is that the child becomes themselves and that that becomes a, a, a blessing for the whole world. It's not for the parent. Um, although the parent, can, you can definitely enjoy and appreciate and love the fruition of one's child. But it's not for you alone. It's really for the. It's for them, and it's for the whole world. And so I always thought of parenting as having kind of concentric circles. You create a certain structure that's needed when the child is a month old, and then it's a little different at three months old, or nine months old, or two years old, or five years old, or eight years old, or twelve years old, or fourteen, or twenty, or twenty-five. That there's a different, there's concentric circles, and the child fills the circle, and the parent needs to then let go of that inner circle in order for the child to have room to continue to grow to then fill the next circle. And you know what happens if the child hits a circle and you hold on to that circle? Boom, boom, boom. The child pushes against it. Because they need the space, they need the the life to be uh, big and get bigger, get fuller. And especially as teenagers, if you try to hold too tight, there'll be a lot of boom, boom, boom. Some of you may have known those circles when you were growing up and done a little pushing against them yourselves. And so it's there's something beautiful about seeing one's role in the parenting figure, and then letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. That's parenting is one beautiful form of Dharma practice of letting go. <coughs> and so in the Buddhist text, there's what happens is um, Rahula is the name of the Buddha's son. Rahula becomes a disciple of the Buddha, and there's three specific places in the text where the Buddha teaches his son directly. And it's very poignant, actually, at least personally, I found it poignant and kind of beautiful <laughs> that he's teaching the Dharma to his son. And the first, his son is seven years old, and he gives him this teaching that's kind of really appropriate for a seven year old. He, he uses these analogies of water and pouring water out and wasting water and and being and starting to pay attention to what your intention is. In other words, he starts to teach Rahula to pay attention to what is your intention and what is your action and what is the result of your action. And he teaches him at an early age about karma, the law of karma. In, sim- in a very simple way, he just teaches Rahula what often parents, even we say, without any knowledge of karma, parents often say, you need to learn your actions have consequences. Right? That's a, that's a common thing that parents want their children to learn. And here the Buddha is teaching him in terms of the Dharma and talking to him about the consequences and the actions and the intentions or the intentions and the consequences of both thought and word and deed. And the different power, he starts to, basically he's teaching him to start to be sensitive to what's happening in the moment, whether it's of thought or of word or of deed, and to understand that there's a power there. 
And it's why we practice mindfulness is because there's a power that's available to us to wake up and to live a life of awakening. And so we, we, we practice being mindful on the cushion sitting here like we did tonight, not because that's an end-all or be-all in and of itself, but because that, can, that kind of sensitivity that we're cultivating can begin to permeate our life, can begin to permeate our interactions with our children, with our parents, with our partners, with our work, with our social life, with our political life. And we can start to have some impact on the world. With We can let our deepest values begin to impact the world by being sensitive moment by moment by moment, not only in the seated meditation, but in every part of our life. And so, um, and so Rahula's given this beautiful teaching at seven about the law of karma, that everything we do has a power to it. And then the next teaching that the Buddha gives Rahula is um, when he's uh, 18. So now he's a little more mature. And he, he actually gives him a teaching. I'll read to you the beginning of the story. They're hanging out together and they're going for alms rounds, going for food. And it said that um, they were walking... The venerable Rahula, he's a monk now, dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, followed close behind the Buddha. And then the Buddha looked back and addressed the venerable Rahula thus, Rahula, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So now, Rahul is 18, and the Buddha gives him the teaching of anatta, which Ajahn Amaro is going to talk about in his day long in a few weeks. He's teaching him, he gives him the not-self teaching. And it's, it would be a really difficult teaching for a seven-year-old. But now Rahula is considered, especially in that time, he's a man at 18. And so he's given a very profound teaching, which is to begin to look at material form, which is body, basically. But it's also all material form. But, but mostly we're talking about body. He's saying, oh, you know, you're taking that to be, oh, I have to give you a little sidebar here. So why did the Buddha say that to Rahula, who's walking behind him? Are you actually asking? Pardon? Is this rhetorical? A um, little bit, yeah. You, you want to answer? I think that Rahula was feeling really proud that he was walking behind that's, the Buddha. That's right. Me. You know the story. <laughs> <laughs> so the story is, that Rahula's walking behind his dad and looking at how radiant he is and how beautiful he is and thinking, oh, it's, it's my dad. I look like him. <laughs> and the Buddha basically is admonishing Rahula now. He turns around, he's admonishing him and saying, you know, any form, internal or external, whether it's me or you, this I, uh, I am not this, this is not mine, etc., etc. The teaching of not-self. And all that means, all that teaching of not-self is that we understand the impermanence of this form. That this form is impermanent. That it'll be here for a while. It's given to us for a while. And then it won't be here. And that to identify with this in some ultimate way is um, dukkha. People know the word dukkha? People not know the word dukkha? Okay, dukkha means generally is translated as suffering in Buddhism. Or um, that which is difficult to bear or um, dis-ease or dis enchantment, not disenchantment, discontent, or things that are impermanent are dukkha. 
meaning that if you grasp on what's impermanent, you'll suffer. That's really the way to, a good way to think about this. If we grasp on this body and try to hold on to it and say, this is me and I'm going to keep it forever, good luck, right? It's just that's not the way it works with this, with life. There is no life that stays. There's no life that lives forever in one form. And so the Buddha gives him the teaching and this is this is what's now now Rahula's mature, pretty mature at this point. He gets the admonishment, right? They're, they're still walking now, and he gets it, he's been admonished, and he says to himself, I've been admonished by the Buddha. I, I think I should just go sit with this for a while. I'm not going to go eat. And he leaves, he goes back, he sits down. And one of the other uh, monks, the main disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta, walks by, sees Rahula sitting there and says, mindfulness of, of breath is of great benefit and, and will be good for you. And so Rahula sits there for the day and later that night he goes to his dad and he says, well, how do you practice, really, how do you really practice mindfulness of breathing? And then, so what you get in the second story is uh, both um, the teaching of not-self and then um, a broad um, teaching of the meditative practices and how to think about body and being present and the kind of mind we want to cultivate in order to simply be present with our breath moment by moment by moment. And so the first thing the Buddha does is he talks to, um, to Rahul about the elemental nature of things. And by this, there's a teaching in the four foundations of what's called the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And I mentioned them in the instructions. You know, if you're aware of hardness or solidity or heaviness, it's the earth element. And if you're aware of um, the breathing, it's the air element, or movement is considered the air element. And if you're aware of temperature, it's the fire element. And if you're aware of a sense of fluidity or cohesion, like just the sense of bodiness, the knowing that there's a body, not even that it's in the, a distinct form, but whatever your inner sense of bodiness is when you shut your eyes, it's actually considered the water element. Because if you put water with powder, it becomes cohesive. So it's the cohesive element in the body or the cohesing element in the body. And he, and then he goes through all these different parts of the body and which are the air element, which are the fire element, which are the water element, as a way to begin to see the body in a less personal way. Doesn't mean you stop having a personal relationship with your body. It just means it's not the, you don't limit your relationship to simply the personalness of the body, but also begin to see beyond that begin to feel beyond that, begin to actually know the body as this kind of changing, morphing energies and, and heat and fires and textures. And, and um, it's a more experiential or phenomenological experience of the body that all of the meditation points us at, that all of the mindfulness of the body begins to point us at, not an intellectual understanding of the body, but the felt sense experience of your body right now. Right now, you can just feel your body and it's as rich and as fruitful as anything I might say. Anything. The whole Dharma is sitting in your body. The whole teaching of the Buddha is sitting right in your, in the simple physicality of our aliveness is the whole teaching. The, the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body you will find suffering and the cause of suffering and freedom from suffering right here and the path that leads to freedom. And then he gives them some very direct instruction how to practice using the, the element uh, in this way where he, he kind of opens up the mind. He's saying, let your mind get really big. Let your awareness or your mindfulness get really big. He says, develop meditation that is like the earth, that is as big as the earth. For when you, you develop meditation that is like the earth, 
arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So uh, uh, what that means is that we learn to sit here and whatever comes, whether it's good or bad, agreeable or disagreeable, we learn how to be present with it and allow it to come, allow it to be here, and allow it to go. This is the skill we're developing in the meditative process. The skill of being present, the skill of being awake to whatever arises and seeing its inherent nature, which is it's transient. Our thoughts are transient, our feelings are transient, our bodies are transient, the sounds are transient. Nothing stays. And this truth, the truth of impermanence, is not just a nice concept. But as we come into the actuality of it, the reality of it, the aliveness of it, it has an impact on us. This truth of impermanence, as we have more of a felt sense in our bones, in the marrow, as they would say in Zen, if we have, when we know it in ourselves, then it allows the, the letting go happens very easily because we, we become one with the way things are. And the way things are is that everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. And so the Buddha uses this image, this metaphor of the earth. He says, just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, so Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. And when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts, experiences, will not invade your mind and remain. You'll not be attached to them. And then he continues to use the, the imagery of the elements. He says, develop a mind like water, just as people wash clean things and dirty things in water. Or develop a mind that is like fire, um, just as people burn clean things and dirty things in fire, or develop a mind that is like air, just um, to, 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 just as the air blows on clean things and dirty things, or pleasant or unpleasant. And then he says, develop a, a meditation that is like space, which is actually a fifth element that's talked about often. For when you develop meditation that is like space, you will not be attached to whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. But there'll be this space in which everything arises, just as space is not established anywhere. So too, Rahula, develop a meditation that is like space. And so you hear that even that that he's also describing the capacity of consciousness to be big, to be open, to be spacious to be allowing, to be accepting, to be knowing of everything that arises and passes. That there is a capacity that we have, that you all have, that's already here, that's already functioning, and we just want to begin to recognize this capacity of knowing. That everything that's happening is being known, and it's all coming and going already. You don't have to make any of that happen. The movement of the meditative process is to wake up to that fact, to awaken to this knowing, to this awareness in which everything appears, sustains for a moment or a while, and then disappears. And what's interesting in the teaching is so the Buddha starts very big, very broad, and then he starts to get more specific and he says, um, after that, he says, Rahula, develop meditation on loving kindness. And he starts to go through the four Brahma Viharas. Now that the mind and heart, the mind is very big, then he brings the heart in. And he says, pay attention to the, the capacity and the possibility of a boundless heart, of a limitless heart that is full of love and then compassion and joy and equanimity. And I, I just want to say one thing here that I, I find very inspiring and often um, um, one of the limits for people, maybe new in practice or, or for many of us, which is 
that part of what limits our practice is a failure of imagination. We think, oh, not me. Not, I couldn't have a boundless heart. That's, that's not possible. Or my mind couldn't be as big as the earth or space. And I'm suggesting to you that's a failure of imagination. That the Buddha says many, many times, he says, if it were not possible, I would not teach it. If it were not possible for men and women like us, he wouldn't have taught it. But because he says, because it is possible, I do teach it. And so I would just like you to consider that it's actually possible for you to have a boundless heart, a heart where the love is limitless, where the compassion is, is uh, there's no boundary to the compassion or the joy is unbounded, totally unbounded. Totally, there's no walls to it. There's no stopping it. You become a radiance of heart, a radiance of being that includes love and compassion and joy and equanimity and balance. And then he continues to go on. He says, develop a meditation on the unbeautifulness of the body, You can pay attention to the beautiful, but also pay attention to the part that's not so beautiful. And pay attention, develop meditation on impermanence, because that will lead to the letting go of the idea, I am. And then he he gets to mindfulness of breathing. And then he goes into detail on practicing anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. Wow, it's nine o'clock already. Impermanent. It's just like that, right? It's like that. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story of the Buddha teaching his child, but also if we think more artifically or more mythologically, he's teaching his children, which means in some sense he's teaching us that we are the children of the Buddha. Or as one of my my um as Jack Cornfield once said to a, a student that we shared who was going off to Asia to practice for the first time and who was scared. He, you know, he hadn't been to Asia and he was going to be a monk. And, it, you know, it's, that's quite a rite of passage. And Jack said, well, you're, you're really putting yourself in the hands of the Buddha now. And they're good hands. They're good hands. So... I think I'll stop here, except to, I'll just tell you the, the kicker on the last story. The last story is he's a couple years older, and the Buddha sees that he's ready to awaken, and he gives him these teachings of awakening, and, the, and Rahula awakens and becomes an arhat, becomes enlightened at about 21. And, you know, some of us may not be... 20 or 21 and think oh it's too late Um, it's never too late it's never too late Um, I'm sorry we didn't I thought we'd have some time for questions and stuff but I think I think I'm supposed to stop at 9 is that right oh 9.15 oh okay so let's do some questions then let's see Let's take, and you could take a moment and think about this. Think about it. You could, any questions about the story or what I said, that's fine. But also, any question that might be the most important question for you, or the most vital question for you, or the most alive question for you around your practice, or around the teachings. And everybody has to have one question. Because if nobody raises their hand, I'm going to call on somebody. Okay? Makes it a little more alive. Okay, here we go. I always get um, a little stuck or confused about the psychological, I call the necessity for a strong ego. Mm Mm-hmm so that we can conduct our lives to take care of ourselves mm-hmm. as well as others. But first we need to learn to love ourselves and take care of ourselves. 
and develop an ego that could go out in the world and do what we need to do to make a living, to have a family, etc. Mm-hmm. So and then we're supposedly, you know, we're listening to the Buddha, the air and water changing constantly. Uh-huh. And sometimes, you know, it sounds to me, that's great for a monk. Uh-huh. When I get up in the morning, I have tasks and so on. Sure. Monk, monks and nuns have tasks too when they get up in the morning, just so you know. But, but okay, it's a good question. So the question is, what's the role of the ego in practice? And there is, there's a very clear role. The Buddha's actually very clear. What he's looking at is when the sense of sen- self is skillful and when it's unskillful. And, and this is the, one of the fundamental um, uh, facets which you can look through the Buddha's teachings. What's skillful and what's unskillful? Um, there's a skillful way to use the ego or sense of self that is really important in, in one's life and in one's practice. And generally, um, the idea that uh, you have to... It's, it's not even an idea you have to let go of the ego just to notice when you're using it skillfully, when this ego's functioning skillfully or unskillfully. When does it function? Here's, here's a good one way to think about it. When does it function um, in the service of your long-term happiness and benefit? And when doesn't it? Because sometimes what we do and the way we function is really for our long-term happiness and benefit. And other times it's actually not. And so we want to start to develop mindfulness so we can discern when our, is the sense of self functioning in a way that's good for us and for others, and when is it not functioning in a way that's good for us He's or others. Self. And yeah. The Buddhist, there is no self. No, he never said there is well, no self. Right, but he never, he, so that's why it's interesting to hear that he talked about what's self and what's not self. <laughs> And not to confuse the two. If you think body is self, that might be a confusion. If you think that there's a sense of someone who needs to take care of the body, that might be very skillful. That, you have, that we have to take care of our bodies, that's a very skillful understanding. Well, let's see, ultimately. Relatively, that can be very skillful to see this is our body and I need to take care of it. It's good if I don't wake up in the morning, go wash your body, right? I go and wash my body, right? You know, it wouldn't be so skillful for me to do that, right? Well, you're not sure, but, you know, I'm, I'm, a pre, I'm honored by your not sureness, but... Uh, but um, but the point I'm making is that it's skillful to know, okay, this is my body. But the my is a relative my. It's not an ultimate my. And that's the confusion the Buddha is pointing at, that we take something relative to be ultimate, an ultimate sense of self. And, and it's actually a really good question. And there's act, I believe there's an article by Tanisaro Bhikkhu in... Shambhala Sun or one of the Buddhist magazines about this very question about skillful use of ego. So you might you might look for it. So I have a question on that. Maybe you can here's something that I've tried to work with and see if it makes sense or not. Is I've tried to feel with myself is like am I feeling connected or am I feeling separation? Mm-hmm. And so to see where my ego's coming in. And and I notice so if I'm feeling separation, it's typically, there's constriction. If I try to be here in the body, it's usually going to be constricted because mm-hmm. it's shutting itself, it's pulling back, and it's mm-hmm. muscle tissue, so it's stopping anything from coming in. And if I'm feeling connected, it feels more open, the mm-hmm. breath and the breathing, and it feels like more space, mm-hmm. you know, more of the emptiness. What do you mean by connected? It, it's like I'm just, I'm feeling... I'm hearing more what's going on in the world. I feel mm-hmm. like I can give more. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, going into my little place. It's like, let's please Rick. You know, it's all about, but it's like, I can step out of what I think is Rick's need and be more giving, mm-hmm. more kind or more sitting, you know, just like letting mm-hmm. something being heard. So there's a sense of, 
of a connect, you know, a connection here versus me and just shutting down. And it's all about me and why isn't this person, you know, taking care of uh -huh. me right now? Uh -huh. Why are they saying these things that don't make sense to me? Right. And and using the body uh -huh. as part of that thing. That's kind of a way that I've been, you know, trying to sometimes work with that. To uh -huh. kind of feel so trying things. to feel or see how how do we how do we discern. The difference between when we're identified with our ego, or actually, I wouldn't even use ego. I would use uh, with a certain kind of deficient sense of self, because the ego doesn't have to feel deficient or separate yeah. necessarily. It could just be I'm functioning and I'm here and I'm here with you, and there's some sense of that. But it's not all of who I am is not the ego. But there's those times when we're feeling very self-conscious or self-concerned or self. Um, t constricted that you're describing, that yeah, is generally it's just that. I wouldn't even put that as ego or not ego. I would just say there's some identification there that's suffering. I would that's the lens that helps me. So the we, and one of the ways we can see suffering is actually in the body. When we're identified, when we're afraid, when we're uh, angry, it's, it's a bodily manifestation. It's not simply an idea. It's not simply some thought. It's a whole totality of our being is expressing itself in that way. And we can start to pay attention so that we can discern, oh, this is suffering. And then bring our skillful means forward to relieve suffering right here, which means letting go or being kind or whatever is needed in that moment. Yeah, body's a great barometer for studying suffering and not suffering. Please. A little louder, and if you could stand up, maybe. So then, uh, again, I would, I would again re-situate re, um, um, that in terms of suffering and not suffering. Because when there's love and compassion, there's not suffering. When the heart is open, even if there's difficult circumstances, it's not that things are all go our way or everything's right, or all, you know, but there is freedom there. The freedom of the un, unhardened heart, the unbound heart or the freedom of mind to have the um, wisdom to see things as they are, to see from the big picture, to see what's actually happening here, so that we're not so identified with the um, little things in a certain way. But we can, we can relate very personally, but we're not, just, we're not just identified with what's happening. That there's an ability to be present and really, I think of it this way, to both identify and disidentify in the same moment. Mm -hmm. To be very present, very real, very personal, but also let that all be infused with the impersonal truth. Mm -hmm. You realize that the love that you have for these people, while there may be some underlying truth to it, is some weird version that you've created all along the way. Mm -hmm. That's true for all of us. That you realize it so fully with your heart that you can't go back to work, that you uh -huh. can't seem to function normally. 
Uh-huh. You can't interact on a so, on the level that you have at any time. Right. All you feel is just all this stuff coming in and wanting, needing to do something about it immediately. Uh-huh. Like the Buddhist. Uh-huh. What would your advice be to a person who's in that situation? Is that your experience right now? Yes. Okay. So I feel very respe- respectful of that. Seriously. Um, I would... I would um, um, see if there's people you're close with you can talk to about what's happening who you respect their advice and get some support. Because, you know, in our day and age, I wouldn't just say, oh, go off, personally. Um, And yet I don't know. Maybe maybe that is the right thing. And this is what's tricky. Nobody knows. We're making this all up. Right? Who knows how, what it means? How, who could say for another really what anybody else should do? I can't. I really I can't do that. But I also know, at least I've seen this in the cycles of spirituality and of people's practice, that there are these existential crises and they're good. They're not a bad thing, even though they're difficult. They're painful, actually. But it gives an opportunity to say, okay, it gives an opportunity to wake up. What is this? What am I doing? And how do I want to live? And so, and then there's a lot of different support available to pursue that investigation. That's a little... The Buddha went, what he did... Now, there weren't therapists in the Buddha's time, or there weren't support groups, or there weren't Kalyanamitta groups, or there weren't sitting groups like this. What he did is he went to the support of his time, which there were wandering ascetics. And that, that's who he saw as a vision of people who had some understanding of what he sought. And so he just did the natural thing. And so in some way, do the natural thing of what's available in our community, in our time, and then see what happens. And take it, you know, really give yourself to the inquiry about what needs to happen. And, you know, if, then if it stays for a few months or a year or so, then maybe you'll make a big change. Or maybe the change will happen inside and the external will be impacted by it, but you don't necessarily have to change the external. Because always really the true transformation is internal. And even the Buddhist story, we can understand it as a mythological movement of going away and coming back. But that movement can happen internally without ever having leaving. To, to having to leave. So good luck, really. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate